Hey, everybody, this is Ben Bowman and Alex Titus. Welcome back to another episode of the Oregon Bridge. The potential for really changing something lies is if our systems are actually working together as these decisions are being made. Defund the police, you know, the problem with using that as the catchphrase is that everybody has a different interpretation of what that means. I think race and racism are absolutely embedded into our public safety system. We haven't really given communities an alternative. I think it's a fantastic vision to think of a community where we don't need a police force. All right, everyone. Uh, today, we had an interview with Multnomah County Commissioner Sushila Jayapal. Commissioner Jayapal is one of five county commissioners at Multnomah County, and she's got a very interesting professional trajectory. We talk about this a little bit in the beginning, but basically, she immigrated to the United States as a 16-year-old with her little sister, now member of Congress, Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal, who's been in national headlines for a lot of different issues. Both of them share a progressive bent in politics, but she had this really successful career in the private sector, rising to be general counsel of Adidas and decided to to change careers and went to the nonprofit sector, ultimately was elected to the Multnomah County Commission, and that is where she currently serves. She's got a bunch of different committees that she is chair and co-chair of, a lot of um, domestic violence, sex trafficking work that she leads at the county level. But it was a fascinating conversation, very, very policy focused, very wonky. Titus, what were your main takeaways? As you said, it was a typical Oregon Bridge episode, very wonky and very nerdy. (laughs) <laughs> so, no, it was it was really good. And we dove into uh, a bunch of different issues. To me, what was most interesting about her, and I feel like folks on the left and the right just don't talk about this enough, but it's that just the homeless issue is so bad in Portland. And part of that, of course, is due to things like rising rents, increased housing prices. And that was basically why she told us she had decided to run for public office, because Portland had become unlivable from her perspective in terms of folks actually being able to find places to live. So that was was really interesting, especially because she had made that such a primary theme where I feel like it's it's sort of an issue that a lot of people talk about, but it's kind of like bundled into a lot of other things when that to me is probably if I was to run for public office in somewhere in the Portland area, at least make issue priorities. I'd be talking about homelessness, 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 rising rent prices, rising housing costs, because that's really what's affecting everybody, no matter who you are. Yeah, no, I agree. I I definitely left the conversation thinking that she should be in charge of more things. (laughs) That she really, she, she really understands this on a deep and technical level. We talk about housing and homelessness. We talk about racial justice, law enforcement, criminal justice. We talk about um, identity politics and uh, the role of identity in governance. Far ranging conversation, really interesting. We very much hope you all enjoy. And I think that's it. Titus, anything to add before we jump into the episode? Yeah, so make sure to follow us on Twitter at Oregon Bridge Pod. And I was notified by one of our journalist friends who listens to the podcast of the either me or you, Ben, last episode said, please send us a message and ask to come on the show. And our Twitter DMs were not even open. So that was that was quite a failure on my part as our incredible uh, social media manager. We are uh, going to dock your pay for that. And that reminds me, one other uh, note for our listeners. We are about to launch a joint venture with our friends at The Oregon Way. So if you haven't yet, type in The Oregon Way on Google and it'll take you to a Substack page. Subscribe to that newsletter. 
pretty soon we're gonna we're gonna launch a joint venture. What we started doing already is providing a weekly newsletter with the most important news on Oregon politics, government campaigns, and elections that you need to know each week. So subscribe to that newsletter, and uh, we'll be your source of uh, information for all things Oregon politics. And uh, with that, everyone, we're going to take you into the episode. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Oregon Bridge podcast. Commissioner Sushila Jayapal, thank you so much for joining us. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me on. Absolutely. So we like to start with a little bit of like a personal get to know you type of question. And one of the things that we both found really fascinating about your professional trajectory is you left what must have been a very lucrative job in the private sector as an attorney for Adidas. In fact, I think the top attorney for Adidas. And you decided to run for public office, to run for the Multnomah County Commission, which is a big shift in professional roles. So can you walk us through your thinking there, why you decided to do that, and how much do you regret it right now? I'm just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to cut to the end. Not at all. Good, (laughs) good. You know, it it was a longer and more winding path and less of an abrupt left turn than it might look like. I'll start with that. So I, you probably know, I came to the U.S. as an immigrant when I was 16. I came to go to college. My parents, born in India, my parents, I would say both came from families that I would describe as striving middle class, you know, roof overhead, food, but just always financially insecure, And they were also ahead of their time for Indian parents of their generation in the sense that I have a younger sister. They sent both of us here to the United States to get an education because they were determined that we would be financially independent. Mm -hmm. And they really, especially my dad in some ways, really believed that we could do whatever we wanted to do, but financial independence was his goal for us. And so his dream was really that we would be doctors or engineers or CEOs of Fortune 500 companies. Right. He at one point, you know, I think said to both of us, I want you to be in the cover of Time Magazine. That was the dream. (laughs) Yeah. That's all? Very very low expectations in this family. Exactly. So, you know, I arrived here as a 16-year-old and and that was my mission. And I, you know, set forth to fulfill that objective. I worked at an investment bank. I became a lawyer, general counsel at Adidas. But also part of my experience in coming here as a 16-year-old, going to a very small college on the East Coast, being one of five what they called foreign students. They didn't call us international students at the time, foreign, um, handful of students of color. So that experience, you know, really, I think for the first time, brought home to me what it's like to be outside a system and to navigate systems when you are an outsider, literally an outsider. So I sort of carried that with me throughout along with gratitude for the sacrifice my parents made. They are now 90 and 80. They live in India. You know, when they sent us here, I don't think they really understood that that meant that they were going to be without us for the rest of their lives. And so I I think have just always carried that dual experience of being an outsider, gratitude, pay it forward. And so even while I was practicing law, for example, I did a lot of pro bono work as much as I could do. I did public asylum work. I represented foster kids. You know, it's it's been a thread throughout even my private sector career. I think at some point, I just got to understand more and more and more that that was what drove me. That was what rewarded me. Mm. And that was what I wanted to move to full time. So I didn't jump directly from Adidas to politics. I had a fairly long period of time in there, 16, 17 years 
I, I left Adidas knowing that I wanted to figure out another path and couldn't do it while I was in that incredibly challenging job. I traveled a lot. I had small kids, whatever. I, I worked with nonprofit organizations for a long time as, as my kids were growing up and uh, both volunteer and in, in some paid roles. And then as I was getting ready for the next phase of my career, thought that I would go on to be an executive director, but this was 2017. And what had also been growing for me was this real sense of urgency about what was happening in Multnomah County. And specifically that it was unaffordable for too many people, unlivable. When I moved here from San Francisco in 1994, lived in a, in a very you know, Northeast prosperous section of town. And it was a part of town, a neighborhood where we had school teachers and people who worked in construction as neighbors, along with doctors and lawyers and, you know, sort of quote unquote, white collar professions. That's gone. If you go back to that neighborhood now, that's gone. That sort of diversity doesn't exist. And even more pressingly for people like me, people who were outside the system, folks of color, immigrants and refugees, that Portland was just becoming unlivable. And that's really sort of the peeling of the onion of where can I take the skills and experiences that I have and make a difference, the recognition that there weren't voices like mine, there are more now, there weren't voices like mine in government at the time, is what led me to decide to run for office. And I want to tell you that my parents are simultaneously shocked and proud. <laughs> they, don't, <laughs> well, they don't really understand how this happened. They think it's a good thing, but they're not entirely sure. So I was going to ask about that. I, you know, I don't know about nationally, but certainly in the Pacific Northwest, your family has got to be the most prominent Indian American family or one of the most prominent. Your sister obviously is a very well-known member of Congress, progressive member of Congress. Do your parent, do they, I mean, how much do they understand? Like I was, I was, we have one of the questions was about your sister tested positive for COVID after sheltering in place with Republican congressmen. This is national story. Everyone was covering this. She was on all the networks and you've got two elderly parents in India who must be wondering what the is happening to their daughters. So have you have you talked to them about how they process your public role? Are they getting all the headlines and, and seeing when you both are in the news? Or what is their perspective on how things look now for you both? They do. Uh, they do follow really closely. You know, obviously easier to follow my sister than to follow Multnomah County <laughs> sure. politics, but they do follow very closely. I, that episode was terrifying. I mean, that was... Um, that was terrifying for everybody, but they are are proud. And I think it's been interesting to see the way that it's engaged them more in Indian politics in a way that they weren't engaged before. Understanding that this is something we view as really important here has, I think, caused, at least my mom, my dad has dementia, so he's he's not following things very closely, but, but my mom really has become more engaged in Indian politics as a, as a result, which is terrific. That's awesome. No, that is really interesting. And so I actually want to circle back to something that you said uh, a little bit earlier, which was Portland is an unlivable city. I, th I think that was exactly what you had said. Can you just sort of walk us through, and I know you, that you talked a little bit about some of the things before, kind of like the high rent prices, just kind of general, what I would say as, as disorder. But, you know, one thing, and I, I think this is funny, because of course, your, your sister lives in uh, up in Washington, in the Seattle area is I was in Washington, D.C. this weekend doing client meetings. And uh, I was telling everyone like, oh, I live in Oregon now because, you know, I just moved back from DC with my wife and everyone's like, oh, that's awesome. Like Seattle is such a fantastic city. Like it's a wonderful <laughs> place to be able to visit. Uh, and I was like, well, I actually, no, it's a, it, it's Portland is in Oregon. Seattle is in the state of Washington. But that kind of goes to what you said, you know, Portland is an unlivable city at, you know, before and that that's something you wanted to change. Uh, and I sort of feel like 
we're kind of the little brother, the little sister to Seattle. How do you kind of recognize or what do you kind of think that the brand is for, for Portland as a city kind of on the national level? Like, uh, like, you know, what do you think it is and what do you think it, it kind of should be to people? Or like, what would you want to see it to people? So I want to start by re- being really clear about what I said and what I meant when I said Portland was unlivable. I was really talking about the fact that back in 2017, I saw it as unlivable and unfordable for certain groups of people and predominantly people of color, but also working class folks, unaffordable. Um, I don't, I, you know, the disorder, I, we can talk about that later, but that really wasn't, um, we, we might have different perspectives on that. And that really wasn't part of my calculation at the time or what I think about when I think about what I'm concerned about in Portland. It's really around affordability and the ability for people to, you know, make a life here and, and thrive um, uh, skyrocketing rents. I mean, I, I think we can, you know, the, the, the housing crisis, homelessness, issues like that, um, that affect everybody. And again, for me, predominantly affect people who aren't represented either in political power or in business power or in, in other seats of power. So I just want to start right by clarifying that, uh, you know, Portland is unlivable piece. I think the the attention to Portland in the national press over the last year or so has been unhelpful, obviously. I think it's been inaccurate and incomplete in many, many ways. And in ways that the media over time has tended to focus on something that they can make controversial and create a headline out of. That's one piece of it. I think that the former president seized on Portland and politicized what was happening in Portland for his own purposes. And that was sort of jumped on by political classes across the country. And none of that's been helpful or, or in my opinion, really accurate. The brand of Portland, um, I don't love thinking about Portland in terms of a brand. I would like it to be a place where people can live rather than a product that we're marketing. Uh, <laughs> fair enough, fair enough. <laughs> Actually, if we could get fewer people moving here, that'd be great. So we need a really negative brand going on there. That's been tried, and I don't know how successful that <laughs> yeah, was. The whole keep, keep Californians out thing. Yeah. I the, there, There's a way in which maybe the some of the ways that we've described ourselves, keep Portland weird, those sorts of things have contributed to this notion of Portland as a brand and a little bit of schadenfreude to then come back and say, okay, Portland's not so cool. But I think ultimately we have all of the kind of fundamentals that we need to make this a place where people can live and thrive. We have an amazing natural setting. We do have things that people enjoy coming to, and they're still coming. I forget. There was a poll recently that said that still viewed as, I don't know, the 10th best city to move to. I or something. That. Right? I'm, trying to, I'm trying to buy a house. It's terrible with all these people. <laughs> <laughs> Right. So so we still have we still have these fundamental assets. And, and what we need to create is a model of shared prosperity. I think we had a period of let's let's set aside COVID because that's been such an anomaly. But leading up to that, a period of a couple of decades where Portland was fabulous if you had money. You know, we had restaurants and we we had boutique stores and we had yoga studios and all of that. But we didn't bring along everybody. And that's not sustainable, in my opinion. And the question about housing prices goes with that. We had, you know, we had a, a market that was developing private housing that was becoming incredibly unaffordable because we were a destination place. And we didn't have the affordable piece of it in place for all of the people who are supposed to sustain that economy. So it's railroad tracks or skis that were separating. And I think if we could bring them back together, 
we would once again be a place where all of us, most of us could live and thrive. That's a perfect segue to, we want to, we obviously have several questions about homelessness and housing, but before we jump into the policy, I think one thing for like your average Portlander is we know we've got Metro, we know we've got city of Portland and we know we've got Multnomah County, but we're not exactly sure where the divisions between what each of them does is or where they overlap. We know we vote on ballot measures where we give somebody a bunch of money and then they all kind of work together on things. As we're segueing into a policy conversation about homelessness, can you walk us through the the jurisdictions here between those three entities? Obviously, the state and federal government are overlapped on top of that, but particularly Metro Multnomah County and the city of Portland, how do they interact on housing and homelessness? So, you know, well, I'll start with a very general and overgeneral statement about what each of the jurisdictions does for the because I agree with you, people don't understand when I was campaigning. I can't tell you the number of times I said I'm running for Multnomah County Commissioner and be like, oh, great. What is that exactly? (laughs) Um, So I I, I do think it's confusing. Just very generally how I described it was the city of Portland tends to be infrastructure. That's not completely true, but it tends to be, you know, sewers, uh, roads, parks, building housing. Multnomah County tends to be services. We got a a bunch of bridges in there for reasons that I've never come but we tend to be services. We're social safety services. We're health clinics, behavioral health, aging and disability service, services for homeless folk, people experiencing homelessness. And then Metro is this unique regional government that started with the, the really a focus on land use um, and transportation as connected with land use. And then similarly to the bridges acquired a bunch of, you know, venues and zoos along the way. So, um, that's how I've described it very generally to people. In terms of housing and homelessness, uh, we, the city and county, have a joint office of homelessness services. And very roughly speaking, uh, the, the, the joint office of homeless services runs our shelters, and it also coordinates and contracts with nonprofit organizations that provide related services. That could be behavioral health services. It could be long-term rent assistance, short-term rent assistance. The other pieces that people need in in addition to a physical unit of housing in order to be housed. Metro comes into play because of the Metro services measure and because of of ballot measures that we've passed. And that's really uh, happened because it's a regional entity that can pass a regional ballot measure. Mm -hmm. And these are regional problems, even though I deal with Portland and Multnomah County. These are both affordable, the question of affordable housing and the question of houselessness is a regional issue. And we've got to have Washington Clackamas at the minimum involved in our approaches because somebody who's homeless isn't paying attention to those boundaries and needs services where it's. That's how I describe the, the relationship and the Joint Office of Homeless Services is jointly governed by the city and Multnomah County, is jointly funded by the city and Multnomah County. And Metro, for example, with the regional ballots, uh, housing services ballot measure has a pool of money that it disperses to all of the counties and then has an oversight role in making sure that those funds are spent the way that the voters intended. Gotcha. And yeah, so I want to dive into the, the homelessness question a little bit more because one, I think if you look at the statistics, it's, certain, it's certainly gotten a lot worse from when I was growing up. And two, I mean, even just looking outside, you know, or driving downtown Portland or driving on the highway, it, it just it also looks like it's getting worse as well. I'm kind of curious of what you think is the right framework to look at when you're combating homelessness, because I've written some articles before about the city of San Francisco, and they've dramatically increased funding over the last couple of years for combating homelessness through either if it's renter's assistance or community outreach programs or drug addiction programs. And 
of course, even though there's more money going to it, the need seems to continuously increase, right? Like more people are on the streets. The situation doesn't look like it's getting better, uh, whether that's from a mental health issue or a drug issue, or even just kind of, you know, as you said, things are really expensive in, in downtown Portland. So I'm, you know, as kind of the skeptical conservative, just throwing more money at something isn't necessarily going to solve the problem. But I'm just even curious of like, I do think it's really cool that that was kind of the issue that partially that was kind of the issue that got you wanting to run for this office is like, how should we be even just approaching the homelessness issue? Like, what is the correct framework to look at? We need to start by recognizing that it's not all one issue. And I could divide it in a whole bunch of pieces, but for purposes of this conversation, I'll stick with just two. There's a piece of the puzzle that has to do with affordability at, I would say, like the mid to upper level income bracket, right? And then the piece of the puzzle that has to do with people, let's, I'm going to arbitrarily pick very extremely low income, let's say 30% of median family income and below. And I, I think those are related, but not the same. And the same is true for the framework that we need to approach them. So one piece of it is scarcity. I think there, we have read lots of articles that tell us that we have a scarcity of housing, that we need more housing at all price points, just based on, you know, we've talked about we're a good place to come, people are still coming, too many pe people coming, not enough housing. And that clearly has an impact on affordability at, again, I, I would say like the, the, the mid to upper level. I also think, though, that no amount of a private solution is going to get us to enough affordable housing at the very lowest income levels. Mm -hmm. That market rate housing isn't going to do it. That the trickle down effect of more housing supply at the top end isn't actually going to do it. It's going to trickle down to some level, but it's not going to get down to the folks who are at greatest risk of houselessness. And, you know, I, I am I, I don't want to characterize myself as sort of an economist on these issues, but we have seen studies and articles about the fact, for example, there have been periods of time and now maybe one where prices are sort of stagnant at the upper level, let's say during COVID because of the fact that you had maybe people leaving, mm -hmm. but that didn't translate down to the most affordable housing. Matthew Desmond talks about this in his book about eviction, that you can have periods of time where prices are stagnant or low at the upper ends and still going up at the bottom end. So the notion that it's a perfect market and increasing supply at all levels will trickle down to all levels, I don't think it's true. So you need to build more housing at, at all levels. And I think that we need to have a much more aggressive federal policy around housing. And we need to really be thinking about developing public housing because the market's not going to do it at those lowest levels. And public housing can look like actually building housing as the federal government used to do. It can also look like vouchers. From the beginning, I've been a proponent of long-term rent assistance as one of the solutions that we really have to invest more in. And that's just that to me, that's just another way of creating affordable housing. But it has to happen at the federal and the state level. I think the state can do a lot around investing in affordable housing in those ways. And then I'd say there's a there's a third piece out there, which is around home ownership and figuring out other models for affordable home ownership. And there's a bunch of stuff around that. So you know, I, I think that's the frame. That's the framework I look at it through. The lens I look at it through is that we we've, we've got a couple of at least two different segments of the market, and we might need different strategies to address those different segments. So I'm interested in your perspective on this. We talked to Mayor Stan Pulliam, who we saw that you did a joint interview with him several months ago, and he said something which I've been thinking about ever since, which is the housing first model doesn't work in terms of homelessness, which I, I, I'm, not, I'm not sure if that's true. My understanding was that it actually did work in Salt Lake City. But the point I think that he was trying to make is something that I agree with, which is 
addiction, mental health challenges, the sort of non-housing component of homelessness is also really significant and a significant driver of people who live on the streets. And one thing I've been thinking about is, I think this is true. I wonder, and I say this as this idealist, uh, liberal progressive, I wonder if, I think about this with wildfires, I think about it with housing, I think about it with homelessness, the scope of what it seems like we're talking about in Oregon doesn't seem large enough to actually do anything. And maybe you can give me some hope and give me some optimism here. But when you think like, as Titus mentioned, the problem of homelessness is getting worse despite more investments. Wildfires is the same way. They just invested like 700 plus million dollars and we're about to walk into a really severe summer of smoke and people's houses being burned down, et cetera. And I, I want to be optimistic and feel like we can do this and we can marshal the resources and we can get on the same page. But the perception that I have from reading the news, I read a newspaper article about Commissioner Myron, one of your colleagues who, who made a similar sort of critique about, I believe it was the proposal from the Metro bond that it wasn't sufficient or it wasn't big enough. And I wonder what you think about that. Um, you've obviously spent decades of your life on these issues. It motivated you to run for office. Do we have the resources to really attack the scope of what is one of the largest public policy problems the country is facing? Or do you feel similarly like that we have a long ways to go before we can actually make a dent? It's going to sound like a cop-up, but I'm going to say both. So <laughs> um, I want to start by acknowledging the point that it's not just about creating the physical housing and creating affordable housing. That's absolutely true. I was, uh, you know, approaching the first part of the question from the piece of do we have enough housing and why do we have an affordability crisis? We absolutely need services. There's no question about it. So because, you know, I see them as overlapping crises. So there's affordability leading to houselessness, overlapping with a behavioral health crisis, and in that, I include mental health and addiction issues. And I think, I don't know that we need to know which caused which. There's sometimes a perception that houselessness is caused by behavioral health crises. I think it's more that it's exacerbated, that your risk of becoming houseless is greater if you've got an overlapping mental health or addiction issue, but that it's fundamentally caused by inability to afford a house. because there are rich people who've got mental health issues and behavioral health issues, and they are not homeless. So, you know, I, I think it's sort of the, the tipping point and what, what pushes people out. And yes, we need to get them housing and we need to get them all of the services that they need to stabilize them in the housing. Absolutely. In terms of housing first, I think sometimes there's a misperception about what that means. For me, what it means is that you create, you allow housing without barriers. In other words, you don't make somebody get clean and sober first before you put them in housing. It's not to say that you don't provide them with the services, but there used to be a model where even in to get into a shelter, we said to people, you got to be, you got to fix all of these other things in your life before we're going to give you housing. If I were on the street, I would not be able to fix my, my behavioral health crisis. You need a home to do that. So to me, that's what housing first means. And I believe, as you said, that there, there is ample evidence that it works when done appropriately. So to get to the question of scale, I actually believe that the Metro Housing Services measure is at scale. Now, we've got some uncertainty coming up about what the impacts of COVID economically mean for the revenues we're going to get from that. But to set that aside... As the measure was conceived, I believe it was really a scale. And pre-COVID, had COVID not happened, we would be in a very different place in a year from now. I can't say today because the money hasn't started coming in yet, so we right. wouldn't have put it to use yet. 
but a year from today. COVID, as with so many things, really set that on a different path. It exacerbated houselessness and the experience of houselessness in ways that we couldn't have imagined when we sort of put the, the measure on the ballot. But even with COVID, the joint office is estimating that they can move, I think it was 1,400 households into housing over the next year. So if you're thinking about scale, if you think about the last point in time count that was done in Multnomah County, it showed about 2,000 people unsheltered houseless and 4,000 houseless altogether. We know it's an undercount, so I'm not going to pretend that that's an accurate number. But, you know, for a general sense of scale, if you've got that number in mind, 1,400 in a year is significant. You know, that's a significant dent. Again, even if you if you double, if you think that COVID has doubled the number of people experiencing houselessness, it's still a significant dent. And most of the folks I've talked to don't think it's had that level of an impact. So I am hopeful. I think that measure was at scale. Statewide, I given that the metro region on houselessness is, is the part of the state that experiences it the most deeply, mm-hmm. I think that's promising. But I am by no means an expert on what needs to happen around the state in terms of scale. You know, I wish I could talk to you knowledgeably about wildfires. I don't think I can. (laughs) (laughs) Well, before we do want to transition to a different question, but um, short follow up on this one timeline, Um, given the construction industry right now is going bananas with all the investments made across the state and the housing market. When do you anticipate being able to to see a noticeable shift in what the city looks like to the person driving downtown in terms of tense um, in terms of percentage of people who are in a house or in an apartment or in affordable housing? Are we thinking a five-year timeline until we've reached critical mass or is it a longer longer than that or do we really even know? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I, I can't pretend to know. I'll say that it's not attached to construction, right? Because putting people in housing through the homeless services measure is paying rent. We're paying rent assistance to them. And so it's not necessarily attached to building more units. Yeah we're moving people into units that already exist. I really, I am optimistic that in a year, we're gonna see a difference. Is it a dent? Is it a giant bite? Is it, you know, like what's the magnitude of that impact? I don't know that I can tell you, but I believe it for a couple of reasons. One is, as I've talked about, the housing services measure money going going into effect. And the, the other is that I think that as we come out of COVID, there are a lot of things that seem ancillary that stopped happening during COVID and they're not so ancillary. You know, hygiene services are not ancillary, they're essential and they kind of stopped happening during COVID. Outreach services are critical. And while we continue to provide those services, we had to pull back some. We couldn't put our outreach workers at risk either. So I don't know that we've teased out all of the ways in which COVID affected what we're seeing right now. And I think the combination of unwinding some of that and putting the housing services measure into, into effect are going to have an impact over the next year. Well, you have given me some optimism. So you have you've succeeded in that. And we'll have to have you back on next year to give us an update. <laughs> That's what I was afraid of. <laughs> <laughs> the shift in policy questions that we have now is about racial justice. Um, because while 2020 was the year of COVID, it was also the year of racial justice. And in the city of Portland, which Multnomah County, City of Portland, very similar jurisdictions, defund the police, abolish the police, law enforcement reform, criminal justice reform was a major component, though not the entire component of what we saw in the protests downtown. And so I'm curious, we, you know, 
city of Portland is making the headlines for this all the time, right? You've got Mayor Wheeler just came out and actually said he wants to hire more police officers in response to the, and he's talking about city of Portland police officers in response to this spike in crime. Obviously, Commissioner Joanne Hardesty has a very different view about what should be done with that budget. You don't see as much uh, in terms of the sheriff's office and at the Multnomah County level. And I understand that the, they're both law enforcement agencies. They look a little bit different in terms of their function, what they do. But I'm curious if, in, in your perspective as an Indian American, sort of seeing this racial justice summer unfold and a spotlight you know, presented on these issues, how do you think about law enforcement under your jurisdiction, which is the sheriff's office, and did 2020 impact how you see that uh, agency performing or whether or not reform needs to happen there? Um, I know that's a big question, um, but I'm curious your thoughts. I think the conversation is absolutely about the public safety system writ large, and the Multnomah County Sheriff's Office is part of that system. We did make some changes over the last two budgets, and some of those sort of walked side by side again with the impacts of COVID, and I won't go into all of them for time, but just as an example, because of COVID, we reduced our jail population, and we did it both by changing the ways in which people are booked and brought to jail, and by releasing some people who were perhaps at the end of their sentences with a very, you know, the sheriff conducting a really, really close look along with the rest of the system as to who it was safe to do that with. So we managed to reduce the jail population because of COVID. Hmm. And as a consequence, we also reduced the budget that goes to the jail system. And then there have been other ways in which we too have really taken a hard look at how much we're investing in the incarceral piece of public safety, as opposed to the rest of what we do, which is social services that we believe prevent people Prevention. from into that system in the first place. Yeah. Um, so it absolutely had an impact. You know, d- different kind of mechanics, politics. The sheriff is an independently elected official. That has an effect on our role. On you know, we we do approve his budget and we respect his role as an independent elected official. So different dynamics, I think, around that, and a much smaller policing footprint for the sheriff. Right. Right. Much larger jail footprint, but much smaller policing footprint. And so much of the conversation has about policing. And that's why I think you see the attention on Portland and the Portland Police Bureau. So I, you know, uh, I guess getting to your question about me as an Indian American, I, I think race is absolutely and racism are absolutely embedded into our public safety system. Mm-hmm. And while I experience racism differently from a Black person or a Latino person or, you know, a Pacific Islander person, at its root, it's the same thing. And I firmly believe that we as Asians don't have justice until, frankly, Black folks have justice, that that's where, that's where the roots are. So, I, 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 you know, that, that could be a whole treatise in and of itself, but I think that's my quick take on me as an Indian American and how I look at it. I think, I think, feel like this was embedded maybe somewhere in your question. I, I guess what I would like to see us do going forward is looking more comprehensively and holistically at the system. So right now, we're pretty siloed. The city does its thing. The county does its thing. For example, when the city makes a budget cut in the police, Portland Police Bureau's budget, it then reallocates that somewhere else within the city. But if we're serious about being a connected system, if we're serious about violence being a public health issue, for example, and I think we are, then the city and the county really ought to be looking together at our budgets and saying, hmm. you know, if you're cutting there, where is the best place for it to go system-wide? 
Conversely, if you're going to make a decision, let's say about body worn cameras, this came up from the latest federal report recommendation that the police use body worn cameras. That's, you know, maybe that's the right way. I've got some questions. It has an impact on our budget because then the district attorney's office has to staff up significantly in order to process that material. So small example, but a way of saying that's where I think the potential for really changing something lies is if our systems are actually working together as these decisions are being made. And I don't think Portland and Multnomah are kind of different from other jurisdictions. Those silos exist, and I, I, I don't think it's happening in the way that it, it could and should. Mechanically speaking, and then Titus, I know you had a follow-up, but mechanically speaking, would that be like a joint budget process that you would engage in together? Or you know, is, is this something that's actually being discussed amongst the jurisdictions or just a sort of idea? It's, it's, uh, I, I don't know that it's being actively discussed in that way. It's, it's, it's something that I'm thinking more and more about. It could be a joint budget process. It could be simply a process where policymakers get together and rather than a joint budget process necessarily, as we're each doing our separate budget processes, we are collaborating mm-hmm. on what those might look like. So I don't know what the mechanics of it would be, but the idea is, is to be able to do this work as a system and not as, as separate pieces of a system. It reminds me so much of the John Kitzhaber approach to education, where it was like, take down the silos between K-12 and higher ed and pre-K, put a budget together that is system-wide. Um, it's similar similar systems thinking, which I appreciate. But sorry, Alex, go ahead. Yeah, so I'm, I'm kind of interested just of what you've been hearing about this on the constituent level, in the sense of that me just kind of with my Portland bias, I would think that maybe a lot of your constituents would be more in sort of the defund the police camp. But uh, I think that the answer, at least that you just gave us, was was pretty nuanced, which it sounds like you say, okay, maybe we need some more funding somewhere, but we need to divert funding, kind of, I would say, like an, an in-the-middle stance. Uh, I didn't at least hear anything that I thought sort of came out as like, oh, we need to defund the police departments, to defund the sheriffs. I was curious of like, you know, where are kind of your constituents at on this issue, or like, what have you been hearing about it? Because it does seem... Since last summer, I mean, at least according to the statistics too, right, there have been huge spikes in violent crime in downtown Portland and kind of the broader area. So I'm I'm just kind of curious of where, where is your constituency at, at least from what you've been hearing, kind of on these issues in general? Um, the short answer is that I don't think it's a monolith. I, I hear from uh, lots of constituents who eh, defund the police. You know, it, the, the problem with using that as the catchphrase for what it is that people want is that everybody has a different interpretation of what that means. Right. Um, I would say that most of my consist- constituents, and I fall into this camp, believe that we need to significantly allocate resources from policing, from jails, to preventive services, to public health approaches. And I think I do, I do hear from constituents who say we need more police. I, I do hear that voice and I think we see it in the media. My own sense of that is we haven't really given communities an alternative. So if you're someone who's experiencing violence in your neighborhood, if your house has, has been shot at and you've never seen government come up with a different approach than policing, you're gonna say, I, I want police because I don't know what else to do. So it's a mix of responses. I have really been focused on community-based alternatives to policing. You know, I'll give you, I, I, so I'll give you another example that might, might help your listeners uh, or might make me clearer. I do a fair amount of work in domestic violence. One of the hardest pieces in this public safety puzzle because it's so excruciating, it's violent. It's, it's no one wants to see violence happen. No one wants to see violence go um, 
people who, who commit violence not be held accountable. And I have survivors I have, two, I have survivors across an array. I have survivors who say, I can't call the police. I am not safe calling the police. Or if I call the police on my abuser, it's going to get worse for me. I need a different approach. I need, for example, safe housing. I need something else. Police doesn't work. And I have survivors and victims who say, if, if my abuser's at my door and I call the police, I want the police to come. And we've had a, we've had a problem over the last year as domestic violence and violence have spiked of an inadequate police response. So my position as a policymaker is if my constituent asks for a police officer to show up at her door, a police officer should show up at her door. But we also, and we also need to create those alternatives mm -hmm. so that that's not the only option that's available to people. So and yeah, I'll, I, you know, I'll say one more thing. No, um, in terms of a long-term vision, I think it's a fantastic vision to think of a community where we don't need a police force. Do I think that that's achievable? Do I think we're getting there tomorrow? Separate questions, but as a vision, if we can put that out there, it allows us to create a path to fix a system that most people think is broken. You know, if we don't, if we don't have a vision of something different, we're not going to be able to create anything that's even slightly different. So I was just going to, I was going to comment on, um, I, I, I was Googling the poll, but the Oregon Values and Beliefs Center, which is this awesome new public polling entity that folks should definitely check out. They did a poll and they found that 27% of Oregonians supported abolishing the police, which was way higher than I would have anticipated. But what I was really thinking as you were speaking, this idea of like, if a constituent, particularly a woman at risk, wants a police officer to show up, she should have one and there should be these. I think that would represent a, the overwhelming majority of what people would say is a good vision for Republican, Democrat, conservative. That's sort of the governing middle, as you could say, on the issue. Um, you might lose some folks when you say we should have a world without we, we, the vision could be a world without police. It's a vision of a world that doesn't need police. Need police. Which I'm going to a little bit of a nuance. Yeah. right? No, for so, sure. Yeah. To follow up on the, the question about racial justice, one really interesting thing about the Multnomah County Commission is, um, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but I believe three out of five commissioners are people of color and five out of five commissioners are women. And so you hear a lot in democratic circles about, they'll say hashtag representation matters. And what they're basically talking about is having diversity reflected in leadership roles is actually really good for democracy and really good for governance. Um, you have folks on the right who will argue, well, actually, we shouldn't spend so much time thinking and talking about different identities. And actually, that's more divisive. Um, and it should just be about merits or, you know, whatever the sort of arguments are, are on the right. But in Multnomah County, it's not so sort of philosophical. It's actually real. We have all women and a majority people of color. So how does that show up in governance? And do you think it matters in terms of the way decisions are made and the decisions themselves that are made? And if so, how and what's your sort of take on representation matters? I absolutely think representation matters. And I, I hope I mentioned it as one of my reasons for running. I think I did that, okay. uh, you know, the perception that the, the reality that, that we didn't have representation. I absolutely think it matters. Um, first of all, I feel incredibly fortunate to be on a board of all women and majority women of color. You know, uh, probably the easiest way to explain how it shows up is to give examples from the small to the not so small. Um, example that might seem small and, and I think actually isn't, I introduced our first 
proclamation of June as Immigrant Heritage Month in Multnomah mm -hmm. County. We had a panel of immigrants come in and share their stories, talk about their experiences. Those are significant because if you are someone who has seen, who has not seen themselves in government, who has not felt recognized or heard visible, that form of visibility matters a lot. And I know it because I hear from people and it matters to them when they look at the, well, the Zoom podium, we actually haven't had a podium, when they look at the Zoom podium, <laughs> you know, and they see somebody who looks like their mom or their aunt or their sister uh, or whatever, it or their daughter, it, it, it matters. It gives them hope and it, it gives them investment in their government that matters to whether government can function. People need that. So that's one small example. Mm -hmm. I'm an immigrant. I, I said, let's do this. Uh, my colleague, Lori Stegman, is an immigrant as well. We work together on, on a lot of these issues. Um, I think that's why it happened. Not because someone else doesn't want to, but because they don't have that life experience that says to them, this is important. Larger example, preschool for all. Could we have done it? Would we have done it if we weren't all women? Sure, sure, absolutely. We have we have male allies, we have white allies. It's it's not that there is a franchise. However, I think the um, the pathway is different when you have a group of people who, from visceral lived experience, know how important something is. Hmm. Um, so I think those are just two small examples. I think it matters in terms of the substance of policy. I think it matters in terms of how the policy is crafted, overgeneralization, but you know, stereotypes exist for a reason. I do think women tend to work more collaboratively together, and that's that's been my experience on the commission. We disagree a lot. Sometimes we disagree vociferously, but we do have that the shared experience does help. And I, you know, I I wonder if it would help on on for example, I would think that if we were in a county that was mixed rural and urban. Mm -hmm. We'd want to make sure that we had folks who had experience of what rural issues were, right? In that case, I, I would think that even some of my conservative county commission colleagues in other counties would agree with me that representation matters. <laughs> have a farmer who understands what's happening in the fields, you know, it's you can try to persuade other people and get them to come along, but it's harder. So I think representation absolutely matters. That was that was some lawyer logic right there. That uh, <laughs> that, that was very good. We you know we were just Titus and I were just debating. I'm actually going to go there, Titus, on the last question because you introduced this idea of rural, um, rural folks, and th that's another theme of our podcast. And oftentimes we talk about the rural, urban rural divide with rural guests. Very rarely, I think, do city of Portland folks get asked about the urban rural divide because it's really outside your portfolio. Um, but Republicans do make the argument that you just made, which is the state is being run by people from Portland or from perhaps the Willamette Valley, um, but certainly not from folks in Baker City and Vail and Medford. I guess from your perspective as someone who represents Multnomah County and uh, is sort of starkly in the middle of the urban side of things, do you have any, do, in terms of uh, reconciling the urban-rural divide in Oregon, where we seem to be more polarized, more divided, and geographically divided, culturally divided. D does that enter your work in terms of governing Multnomah County, or is it really like that's the state's job and not something that I have purview over? Because it, it does seem to be one of those things where no one is claiming it as their job to solve, and we continue to become more entrenched. Yeah. You know, it does enter my work, and, and the way in which it does it is the Association of Oregon Counties is an organization of, of counties, and, and we get together. And I um, 
there's this thing that the AOC does for new county commissioners. They run something called County College, and it's in your first year as a commissioner, and you I uh, forget where we did it now. Uh, I think we did it in Salem, but you come together with the, your class of new county commissioners and you learn about what it means to be a county commissioner. I was the first Multnomah County commissioner to ever attend county college. Wow. And, and I did it because I recognize that my entire experience in Oregon has been here in Portland. And I wanted to meet my colleagues and, and start to learn about the rest of the state. So it doesn't affect, so that, that's a way in which, so I engage in that group. I continue to engage in that group. And, and that's a way in which I engage with my um, rural uh, commissioner colleagues. It doesn't affect my day-to-day -day work, except that there's one substantive area, actually, where I think it will significantly. Um, I'm really interested in property tax reform. Mm. I think Oregon's property tax system is broken. And interestingly, it's a place where the normal divides, I think, might not apply. Mm -hmm. I think the normal urban-rural divide doesn't apply. I have started talking with rural county commissioners in counties where I'm getting super wonky and geeky here. I'm sorry. <laughs> we love it. <laughs> we, we, we do that on this podcast. It's okay. <laughs> but, but where their rate was fixed at a time when they got timber revenue yep. and has never gone up. Right. And they're suffering. They're struggling. They understand the need for change in our property tax system. Similarly, even within Multnomah County, the normal, let's call it the east side, west side divides don't apply because both in the, the West Hills and East County, people are being relatively overtaxed because of the way measures five and 50 work. So that's a very concrete example of how I think that those relationships and that divide matters. And I think if we maybe one of the ways to get over or at least to bridge divides is to try to find those issues where the normal divides don't apply, where there are there are issues out there that are of common interest that if we could work on together, we're, we're not going to solve it all. And it's not unique to Oregon. I mean, I'm guaranteeing you that if you went to Seattle, you'd, you'd hear a similar conversation. But it's real. And again, I think the two ways to, to try to at least take, take steps towards bridging it, one is personal relationships. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, really, it sounds cliche, but when I was at County College chatting with Commissioner Andrus from Union County about his family and about shared experiences we had around family mattered. And we made an agreement that he was going to come to, to Multnomah County and I was going to go to Union County and then COVID happened. So it never happened. Um, so personal relationships and trying to find those spaces where there is common interest, I think is the way to try and approach it. Well said. Yeah, very well said. Uh, well, Commissioner, thank you so much for taking the time to join the podcast. It was great to have you on. Before we let you go, where can people follow you? Where can they find your work? Where can they see what you're up to? They can follow me on Facebook, and I wish I had my my tag, but search for me on Facebook and you'll find me there. Um, email me at sushila.jayapal at multco.us. Twitter, I'm at sushila.jayapal, and I believe I'm on Instagram as well, and I can't remember that handle, but search for me and you'll find it. If you see Pramila, it's your sister. Sushila is you. If you're mad about Congress, go yell at her. Local issues, go yell at Sushila. You got it. You got it. <laughs> No, very good. Uh, well, great. Well, Commissioner, thank you so much again for joining. Uh, everybody, thank you so much for tuning in and make sure to hit uh, that five stars button and also uh, please subscribe so you don't miss an episode. See you in the next one. Thanks, everyone.